Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Ancient Church, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the first millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkopf, is a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, and he's the author of Epic, A Journey Through Church History. His 20-part epic study is available at his website, www.catholictimeline.com. In part two of this four-part series on the history of the ancient church, Steve introduces us to the age of the persecution, when the Church of Christ boasted such great early fathers as St. Polycarp, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Justin Martyr, and St. Irenaeus, who resolutely defended the faith and were frequently martyred for it. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve refers to is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. Good evening, everybody. So last week, we began our series here on the four-part series on the ancient church by going through and, and, first of all, understanding what is history, right? And learning what it is, when we, what, it, what are we actually doing when we study church history. And what we're doing, as I mentioned last week, is that we're studying our family history. Remember, just as we would go through and study our family genealogy to know more about who we are and our own individual identities, when we study church history, that's what we're doing, is we're going through our family history, our family genealogy, and knowing who we are as Catholics, and building and shaping and, and forming that Catholic identity that we all have as members of Christ's family and members of the church. And then I mentioned how one way in which to study church history, or to really a proper way to study church history, is not from the Calvin method. Remember we talked about the Calvin method last week of just memorizing names and dates and events, although those are important, but really a proper understanding, proper study of history should be from a narrative perspective, through stories through going through and understanding the actions of men and women of the past and framing them in a narrative and a story so that we can remember those. And I said another way that we try to remember history, especially church history, is through the development of different time periods. And I mentioned that historians in the past have come up with different time periods and that I've come up with one you know, recently that's been published called Epic. And we have Epic time periods. And there's 12 of those time periods um, that I showed for you last week and we're going to cover four of those over the next four weeks and then hopefully maybe a little bit later on uh, in the latter part of the year, next year, we'll have another, another four-part series of the rest of the, those time periods. And so we, last week, we looked at our first time period of the mustard seed. And this is when the church was really small, and the church had just, had, was still in Jerusalem, but then the, the Holy Spirit came to the apostles at Pentecost. Filled with the Spirit, the apostles then went out throughout the known Roman Empire and even beyond the borders of the empire to spread the gospel. And we saw that as the church spread and the gospel spread and more and more people came into the church, they came into contact with a non-Jewish population, the Gentiles. 
and then the church was through, especially through the efforts of St. Paul, and we saw then that the church had a major question, right? The first question that the church had to answer in her history was, what do we do with these Gentiles, right? And we saw how the apostles met in Jerusalem, and that whole question of, do the Gentile converts to the faith have to become Jewish or have to follow Jewish circumcision and then dietary laws in order to become Christian? We saw that that question was answered, that they didn't have to be circumcised, but they should follow certain dietary laws, right? Then we saw, again, how the church, as she got, came into contact with this, with this Gentile world and she came into contact with the predominant government of the Gentile world, the Roman Empire, we saw what? What happens? Persecution, right. So we saw early persecution, especially it begins in the year 64 under the reign of the emperor Nero, right? We saw how Nero blamed the Christians for starting a fire that he ordered to be started in Rome. And as a good politician, he deflected the criticism from himself onto somebody else, and he deflected onto the Christians, right? So we saw that in our early time period of mustard seed. And then we moved into just briefly a discussion of the time period we're going to spend all night tonight talking about, the time period of persecution. And this is a time period in the church from the year roughly 100 to the year 312. And we'll talk about that time period tonight, and then next week we'll look at what happens as a result of the persecution, that the empire will be converted because of the blood of the martyrs. And we'll look at that. Remember how I said last week that Nero, in the year 64, passed a law making it illegal to be a Christian in the empire. And that law is going to be on the books from 64 to the year 312. And then we'll see next week how that law gets repealed and changed. And so we saw some of this early persecution. We saw, too, how these, some Roman authors would come to the scene, these propagandists, these pamphleteers, if you will, who, who wrote tracts against the Christian church, against the Catholic church, trying to persuade people not to become Cat or Christian and Catholic. Remember how we said there were five main reasons that they would, myths or attacks that they levied against the church. You know, the first was that these Christians are atheists. The second was that they were ignorant and poor people. They came from the really poor and ignorant parts of Roman society, and, and you know, self-respecting Roman nobility would want to have nothing to do with those ignorant and poor people. Then we saw how they would they'd say that Christians are bad citizens. Right? They didn't care about the welfare of the empire. They didn't worship the emperor. They didn't worship the state gods. Therefore, they were a threat to, our, to the Roman national security. We saw then, too, how the Romans would attack Christian doctrine. Right? And they'd say, oh, those... Christians, they believe in unreasonable doctrine, the incarnation that was nonsense, remember, according to the Roman mind, that it's just unreasonable for God to come down and become one of us. Why would he do that? Right? Remember, we, we read that quote from the one Roman propagandist that said, did he come down here because he wanted to know what we were doing? Isn't he God? He should already know that. Right? So this was unreasonable for Romans. And if you were a Roman, you wanted to be you know, reasonable. You didn't want to be unreasonable. And it was seemed as if you joined the Christians, you would be unreasonable. And then the last one, the last attack was that the Christians were cannibals. Right? And we saw not only was that in relation to the Eucharist, but there was another twist to that that these Roman writers would use, and that neophytes, those who wanted to join the Christian church, had to basically kill a baby and then eat the baby's flesh and drink the blood. Remember that? And, of course, there were a lot of things you could do in Roman society and a lot of things they put up with, but the one thing they wouldn't put up with was eating the flesh of a human being, and especially that of a baby. So they would use that as, again, an attack, all false, so that people wouldn't join the church. But despite all these Roman writings, and despite this propaganda, people did join the church. And so we kind of ask ourselves a question, the first question we should ask is, why? I mean, what was the attraction of these Christians? And there are multiple different reasons for it. Um, people were greatly attracted to the Christian church. Tertullian, the church father that we'll talk a little bit about tonight, wrote this to, about why people are, are coming into the faith, or, or the fact that there are so many people coming into the church. He says this, he says, We are but of yesterday... And we have filled all you have, cities, islands, forts, towns, assembly halls, even military camps, tribes, town councils, the palace, senate, and forum. We have left you nothing 
but the temples. So just a quote from Tertullian to show that the church is growing in vast membership despite these propaganda um, pamphlets. Now, one of the reasons why people were attracted to the faith was because of the holiness of the Christians, the holiness of the martyrs in particular. And if you, when we study church history, one thing that we kind of come away with is, is this understanding that what I like to call that holiness attracts. Right? People see someone living a holy life, a holy life in accord with, with God and with, with the church's teachings. That's attractive, right? Because we all know deep in our hearts, written onto our hearts, there's a desire for holiness. And when we see people living a holy life, that's attractive to us, right? We know this in our own day and age with Pope John Paul II, right? Even non-Catholics, non-Christians loved John Paul II. Why? Because people could see inherently this man is, is holy, Right? He lives a holy life. That holiness in his life was attractive. Mother Teresa, another example. Right? Same, same purpose. And so just as in our own day and age with those examples, that's really what was going on here in the early part of the church. These early Christians lived a very holy life. They lived the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Right? And so that was attractive to people because it was so different and unique from the way people lived in Roman society. And in particular, the, the theological virtue of charity. Christians were known for their love for each other and for the tight-knit community in which they belonged. And not only did they practice charity in the community, the Christian community, but they practiced charity to the pagans. Right? We have accounts that when plagues would break out in, Christ, in, in the community, Christians would minister not only to their own sick, but to pagans who were sick, to Roman citizens who, who were not members of the church. That was a huge influence. That made a huge influence and gave a great example to Roman society of what it meant to be a Christian. Right? And you can, we can imagine, we can see that. You know, if you see somebody who's caring for somebody who's sick, you know, somebody who's not a part of their community, we would say, wow, that's, I want to be a part of that. Right? If I'm sick, I want somebody taking care of me. So this is why people were attracted to the Christian faith and to the church, right? because these Christians lived a life of holiness, and they lived the virtues, and they loved each other, and they loved, those, and they loved their neighbor. Right? They were living at heart our Christian vocation. So now we, you know, despite this, though, the Roman government persecuted the faith, and we'll get into more details of specific persecutions in a moment, but we have to ask the question, why? You know, why, why would the Roman government care? Why would they want to persecute Christians? What would be the whole purpose? And there's several different reasons why the Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. The first is that the Christians were an identifiable, identifiable minority. Right, so anytime you have an identifiable minority that was different from the rest of society throughout history, you see that that minority is always... Um, persecuted by the majority, by the majority of citizens. So because the, Roman Empire, because the Christians in the Roman Empire were this small, identifiable minority, and they were different and refused to go along with Roman society in many different areas, they were then easily susceptible to being persecuted, and they were. The second reason why Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire is because they were considered to be antisocial. And what I mean by that was that the Christians avoided going to the public baths, which was a big social center of Roman society, and they also avoided and did not go to the gladiatorial games, which again was another kind of focus and center of Roman society. Um, St. Justin Martyr, for example, who we'll talk more about in a minute, said this. He said, The world suffers nothing from Christians, but hates them because they reject its pleasures. So you had the Christians rejecting all these pleasures and all their recreation and entertainment that you know, the, regular Rome, or the regular Romans would go to, and so that made them suspect. Well, what's wrong with these people? You know, they don't like gladiatorial games? I mean, did anybody see the movie Gladiator in here? Right? Entertaining movie? Yes? No? Right? Yeah, for the most part. What's wrong with you people if you don't want to go see you know, the movie or go to those games? I mean, that's what Roman citizens would say. What's wrong with these people? You know, why can't they just be like everybody else? Again, being different opens you up to criticism and opens up to attack. Same today, 
same as it was then. Another reason why the persecutions happened was because the Christians refused to worship the state gods. I mentioned this earlier when we talked about um, you know, the pagan myths and, and propaganda that was being um, written about the Christians. And this really was disconcerting for Romans. Failure to worship the state-sponsored gods or failure to worship the emperor was seen as a treasonous activity. You know, and in a certain sense, it was blasphemous from their perspective. If you didn't worship the state gods, you were blaspheming them. And then also it was seen as, you know, again, you were bad citizens. You didn't care about the empire. You didn't care about our welfare. You, you refused to worship these gods. Therefore, there's something wrong with you, and we need to do something about that. Now, the other reason why they, the persecutions occurred against the, the Christians is because, again, politics of the empire, just general politics. Roman nationalism would sometimes come into play. There would be times of civil unrest or a bad economy. You'd have bad emperors. And, again, there would always be this, this the desire to, to focus our, our problems you know, on, on somebody, to blame somebody for our problems. If the economy is bad, let's blame somebody for it. If there's civil unrest and there's a lot of warfare going on internally, well, we've got to blame somebody for that. It's obviously the gods are upset, so who's to blame for that? Well, it's not the emperor, it's not the politicians, it's got to be this group over here, the Christians. They're the reason why all this is going on. Tertullian wrote about this, how the Romans would blame the Christians for everything by saying this. He said, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the cry is, the Christians to the lion. All of them to a single lion? Oh, he's being kind of facetious at the end there, but... There's this sense that, again, you know, the Christians were being blamed for everything that was wrong in society. And, and so they were scapegoated and just sent them to the lions if something's wrong, and therefore we can avoid the real issue of what's going on in our society. Now, there were 12 major Roman persecutions against Christians from the year 64 to the year 305 A.D. Twelve major persecutions. I'm not going to go through all 12 tonight for time purposes, but we'll go through a couple of examples to, to illustrate what was going on during these persecutions. Now, it's important to note, and I think I mentioned this last week, but I just wanted to emphasize it again, that of the 12 major persecutions, that when I say major persecutions, they were very intense, but that doesn't mean that they were all empire-wide. Right? That's a very important point to keep in mind. Some persecutions were empire-wide, meaning the, the persecution was intense throughout the empire and all provinces of the empire. Sometimes a persecution was just localized to a particular city, to a particular region, or a particular province. Right? Sometimes we have this idea in our mind when we hear of the Roman persecutions that there was this active, horrible, everyday, 24-7, you know, 365 days out of the year persecution of Christians everywhere throughout the empire, and that's just not historically true. So I don't want to leave you with that impression. Sometimes it was empire-wide, sometimes it was local. It just depended. So there were times of relative peace throughout this whole period of time, from 64 to 305. Sometimes there was long periods of peace where the Christians were still underground, but they weren't being you know, actively harassed. But other times they were. So one persecution I want to talk about early, an early persecution is the persecution that happened under the emperor Trajan. Now, Trajan's persecution um, came about through, from this uh, reason, or for this, uh, this uh, way. Basically, there was, he had a governor of a province by the name of Pliny the Younger. And Pliny wrote Trajan a letter because there were Christians in his province that had kind of agitated and come to the forefront. And so Pliny didn't know what to do with them. You know, there was no, he knew it was against the law to be Christian, but he didn't know, you know, how should I handle this? So he wrote to Rome and said, how should I handle this situation? Should, should I actively persecute the Christians? was the question he asked Trajan. And Trajan went back, wrote a reply to Pliny, and he formulated what's known in history as the first don't ask, don't tell policy. Because <laughs> so, what he wrote back, that, we all think that was a modern construct. It wasn't. It happened way back in, in time here in the early part of the first, second century. So Trajan's response to Pliny was, well, don't go around asking if people are Christian. 
and they don't necessarily have to tell you. But if they make noise, and if they, you know, if they tell you they're Christian, then okay, you have to do something about them. Arrest them, rough them up a little bit, and then let them go. And that's kind of was his, his uh, policy back to Pliny. Now, what happened, though, was to, to make this, that kind of don't ask, don't tell policy into a more active persecution, was that in the year 115, in the city of Antioch, there was an earthquake. And the Emperor Trajan himself happened to be in the city during this earthquake. And it was a fairly severe earthquake and a lot of destruction and people died. And even the Emperor himself was wounded as a result of the destruction from the earthquake. And of course, people wanted to know, they wanted to blame somebody for the earthquake and all this destruction. And so they decided to blame the Christians. Right? Again, easy, identifiable minority that we could pick on. So they blamed the Christians for this, um, this earthquake. And uh, Trajan decided to arrest the bishop of the city of Antioch, who at the time was St. Ignatius. Now, St. Ignatius of Antioch had been bishop of that city for 30 years. So he'd been there for a long time. He was a very revered and honored member of the church. So he was a very beloved member of the church, and he had been actually trained by the apostle St. John. So he you know, has apostolic ties going all the way back right to the beginning of the church. He was very well known and very well venerated. Now, what Trajan decided to do with Ignatius was he wasn't going to just execute him in Antioch. He decided to make an example out of St. Ignatius. And so the example he decided to do was he had him arrested, and then he was going to transport him to Rome and kill him in the major amphitheater in Rome to make a big example out of him. And now that's actually providential because... Um, Trajan's decision to do that allowed Ignatius, you know, took time to go from Antioch to Rome, and while he's on his journeys, he's writing letters. He ends up writing seven different letters, some to Christian communities, and one in six letters to Christian communities. One he actually wrote to an individual, St. Polycarp, who we'll talk more about in a moment. So we have a very interesting understanding, a good understanding, rather, of the early Christian church and how it worshipped and how it was organized and structured from Ignatius' letters. And they're also just beautiful letters to read of a man who had deep, deep faith in Jesus Christ. If you really want some good spiritual reading, and if you've never read the letters of St. Ignatius, I highly encourage you to do so. You know, go online. You can Google them. They're free. You can just type in St. Ignatius letters, and they'll all come up, and you can just read them online for free. They're wonderful. They're beautiful. Highly, highly spiritual and, and wonderful reading, especially like during Lent. If you want to get some, you know, we just passed Lent and we're on Easter. But, you know, next year for Lent, if you're looking for some spiritual reading, look at uh, St. Ignatius's letters. Now, in his letters, we, we read that he writes, he uses multiple, time, multiple times in his letters, he makes reference to Jesus Christ, our God. All right, now why I point that out is because many times we even hear the attack today that, you know, there's this thought or this notion that the early Christians didn't really know who Jesus was. The early Christians didn't really think Jesus was God. You know, they kind of thought he was a nice guy, he did some miracles, and he was, that was fun, but he wasn't necessarily divine. Right? That didn't happen until much later. Next week when we talk about the Council of Nicaea uh, and a particular modern novelist who has furthered this notion that the early church didn't believe Jesus was divine, that was something that was made up in the 4th century. Right? Anybody hear of Dan Brown? Yeah, Dan Brown made that up, and he writes that in his book, The Da Vinci Code, and we'll talk more about that next week. But here we see the very early beginnings of the church's history, right? In the early 2nd century, we have St. Ignatius writing multiple references to Jesus Christ our God. He also writes about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. In one of his letters, he writes this, Take care, then, to partake of one Eucharist, for one is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, and one the cup to unite us with his blood. So again, all these modern notions or attacks that we have again, you know, from different sides, of, uh, different sides of the world saying that all the early Christians didn't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Again, that's some later accretion by the Catholic Church. It's not true. Right? It's just not true. And we could prove it here through Ignatius' letters. He also, in his letter to the community, the Christian community in Rome, he wrote specifically 
about his, his understanding of God's plan for him in his life, and that he knew he was called to martyrdom, and he embraced that martyrdom willingly. Right? And so we see an insight here of this great spiritual depths and love this man had. He was afraid that some of the members of the Christian community in Rome would try to uh, go to the emperor and, or to some other high court official and try to have his martyrdom postponed or even overturned. And so he wrote to them saying this. He says, God's wheat I am, and by the teeth of wild beasts I am to be ground, that I may prove Christ's pure bread. So, I mean, this is a man who's a very, you know, he's a saintly man, a holy man, a man who knew that he had been called to martyrdom and he embraced that martyrdom freely. Another important uh, reason to know St. Ignatius is that he's the one who gave us the name of our church. What's the name of our church? Okay, uh, what's the name of our church? Come on, everyone. The Catholic Church, right. Where do we ever, ever wonder where we got that name? Yes, we all know it's the Greek term means universal, right? But who was the first person to actually use that term? It's St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius, in one of his letters, he writes, Where the bishop appears, there let the people be, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. So again, a very important reason of why we should know St. Ignatius. Ultimately, he did make it to Rome, and then was thrown to the lions in the amphitheater and martyred. Now, during the early part of the church's uh, history here, not only is she dealing with external persecution, you know, the Roman government coming and arresting bishops and arresting Christians and torturing them and executing them, but also we have during this time, too, kind of internal persecution, we could say, in the forms of some early heresies and some schisms that erupt. And one of the first early heresies the church had to deal with during this time, and, and for the next couple of centuries, actually, is the heresy known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism just comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics were a very interesting group of people. They, they were kind of dualists. And what I mean by dualists is they believed that there were two gods, in essence. They believed that there was a god of light, a god of goodness, a god of the spiritual world, and there was a god of darkness, an evil god who was the creator of all material things. So in the Gnostic understanding, spirits and our souls are good, but the material aspect of the world, all the earth and our bodies, are bad. So spirit is good. The body, matter, is bad. And they believed that the history of the world was this battle that existed between the God of goodness or light and the God of darkness, the God of evil. And they believed, again, that good human souls are imprisoned in these bad physical bodies. And they believed, too, that the way to free yourself from your soul, your good soul from your bad material body, is to grow in this knowledge, in this secret knowledge. And they believe that Jesus came and he actually gave us some of the secret knowledge. And so we become Christian or we study the teachings of Jesus because as we progress through our spiritual life, we grow deeper in this perfect and secret knowledge that he can give to us. Now, one of the things that we keep in mind about Gnosticism is that Gnosticism actually existed before the, the Christian faith, existed afterwards. And one of the things that Gnosticism, why it stays around for such a long period of time, is that it kind of accretes to itself different teachings from whatever religious group or movement it wants to attack. So if there's any Star Trek fans in the audience, any Star Trek fans, they're kind of like the Borg of heresies. Right? You will be assimilated, resistance is futile. That's what Gnosticism does. They just assimilate all these different teachings and they kind of mash it up and create it into their own little uh, pool of jello, so to speak. So again, the Gnostics believe Jesus showed the way to this perfect knowledge. But again, matter is bad, the body is bad, spirit is good. So they denied certain fundamental in central Christian doctrines like the Incarnation, right? Jesus didn't actually become truly man. Why would he do that? Why would a good God, a good spiritual God, take on this bad material body? 
So they denied the incarnation. They also obviously would then deny the Eucharist, or the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. God would not do that. He would not take his good soul and imprison it into these material substances or somehow transform these material substances. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. They also denied, interestingly enough, or they actually rejected really marriage, and the, the one act, the central act, that goes along with marriage, the marital act, the sexual act, they rejected that completely. Because, again, think about it from their perspective. What happens in, in the marital act? A man and a woman embrace, and they unite in this act that God has given to us. And what happens, though, is that in this act, life comes forth or can come forth from that act. And so what these people are doing, what a husband and wife are doing, is they're taking their bad bodies, uniting them, and then if a child is the result of that union, then you're imprisoning a good soul into that bad material body of the child. Right? Now, obviously, they didn't grow very much in terms of their population <laughs> because they rejected marriage. It's one of those things, not a smart thing to start off by doing and saying, well, we're going to reject that. You know, we're not going to increase our membership. So there was only a few, <laughs> a few of them around at a particular time. But, and actually, it was interesting. I was just this weekend in a parish outside of um, Pittsburgh, and there was it's this parish, the city is called Ambridge, and it was founded by this German pietist movement back in the 19th century, and they actually practiced celibacy. And over about 100 years, they died out. <laughs> Which, again, kind of, all right, well, let's think about how we want to do this. But anyways, the other thing that the Gnostics believed was that their highest form of worship was to commit suicide. The highest form of worship was to commit suicide. And again, think about it from their perspective. If the soul is good and the body is bad, the, the ultimate way, the ultimate act of worship, the ultimate way in which you can free your good soul from your bad body was to kill your bad body. Now, Gnosticism actually mutates and is in, you know, to other different heresies and exists throughout the history of the church. And even just recently, we're still dealing with it in forms of it in the 20th century today. And that's one thing that you learn as we study church history. You look at the different history of heresies. You see that heresies you know, mutate over time. They arise. The church will address them in different councils and other things that we'll see more, you know, next week in particular. But then, despite that, the heresy kind of lingers for a bit, and then it pops back up. It's kind of like that carnival game or that fair game, whack-a-mole. You ever heard of, you know, where the mole pops up and you smack it, and then it pops up over here and you got to smack it again? I mean, that's really what heresy is. It's like the whack-a-mole. It just pops up here and now and just mutates all throughout history. So Gnosticism actually will mutate into what's known as Manichaeanism in the 4th century and, and the 5th century, and St. Augustine will have to deal with that and others. It will also then mutate later on in church history into what's known as Albigensianism, or Catharism in the 12th and 13th century in the south of France, and the church will have to deal with it then. And then also, too, there was a form of Gnosticism that came about in the 20th century, in the late, uh, late 20th century, 1998, there was this cult-like group in California called Heaven's Gate. Anybody remember Heaven's Gate? There was this kind of weird group of people, and they all, there's this mass suicide of them, remember? And the whole reason why they committed suicide was because they believed there was a spaceship that was coming behind some comet or something, and, and you had, what? A pale body, and they had to, yeah, and they had to kill themselves in order to release their souls to meet up with the spaceship at the exact same time or something. So again, you know, the church still dealing with this heresy way back here in the second century, still you know dealing with remnants of it today. So that's one of the early heresies. Now we know an awful lot about Gnosticism from one particular bishop, a man who wrote an awful lot about uh, Gnosticism, a man by the name of Saint Irenaeus. Saint Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon in what was then Gaul or modern-day France. And he wrote a book, uh, which we refer to now as Against Heresies, and in that work, he writes all about Gnosticism, gives us a very good summary of their teachings, and also a way in which to kind of refute Gnosticism, an argument against their doctrines. Now, St. Irenaeus is also important in the history of the Church, because in this work Against Heresies, not only does he talk about Gnosticism, 
But he also talks about uh, the kind of characteristics of, a, of the church, of a true church. And what he talks about in terms of the characteristics of a true church or the features of a true church is that the church that is authentic is one whose message is identical throughout the world. So you have all these different Christian communities. If they're teaching the same thing, then obviously that, that is an indication that they have the true faith. He also said that we can know a church is authentic if it can trace its lineage, right, the office of bishop, back to the apostles. So he talks about apostolic secession. He also writes and says that we know a church is authentic if it is in union, in communion with the church in Rome and with the bishop of Rome. He wrote this, For with this church, meaning Rome, all other churches must bring themselves into line on account of its superior authority. And we also have in Irenaeus' work a list of the Roman pontiffs, you know, from Peter up into the, the pontiff at his time, the 13th pope. So this is a very important work for us in the history of the church. We, we have this understanding of, again, the Roman jurisdiction, the Roman primacy, and understanding of the true features of, of an authentic church, a church that can trace its lineage back to the apostles and that teaches you know, the authentic teaching of the apostles throughout the world. Now, another heretic that comes to the scene during this time in early church history is a man by the name of Marcion. And Marcion was a very wealthy individual, was a ship owner. He comes to Rome and gives a large sum of money to the church. Marcion actually had adopted many different Gnostic tendencies. He was really kind of a semi-Gnostic himself. He really denied that Jesus even had a human nature. He kind of focused only on Jesus' divine nature. And that will be a question that will continue to pop up throughout the church's history. And we'll talk more about that in, um, in detail next week. But the other thing that Marcion did was that he was really interested in Scripture and in reading the Bible. And what he decided to do, though, was he wanted the church to agree with his interpretation of the Scriptures, and individual interpretation of Scriptures. We all think this was a new thing in the 16th century with Luther and other Protestant reformer, you know, revolutionaries. I mean, it happens here in the second, part, or second century of the church. This is in 144 A.D. So we have Marcion trying to get the church to agree with his interpretation of Scripture. And one of the things that he does is he develops this dichotomy between the Old Testament and New Testament. In essence, he reads the scriptures and he says, you know, the God of the Old Testament kind of sounds a little different than the God of the New Testament. And so he thinks he actually rejected that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as, as the God in the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament kind of seems very wrathful, you know, vengeful, jealous, um, you know, smites people, orders the Israelites to smite people. And then you have Jesus and the New Testament, you know, talks about the Heavenly Father and the Loving Father. It just seems completely like two different um, deities. And so he rejects that there's any kind of, you know, unity in the scriptures, and that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And unfortunately, we still kind of deal with that today in some areas. I mean, it's kind of thankfully lessened a bit over the last couple of uh, decades, I think. But still, there, there is this, some notion you hear of, and, and some t sometimes we read different stories, or in, even, unfortunately, in different uh, universities, where you have scripture professors or others arguing that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, right? Obviously, not true. The church doesn't believe that, hasn't taught that from the beginning, understands it as one true God, the same God. Manifests himself perhaps differently over time, reveals himself in different ways over time, but still the same God, the one God. Now in July of 144, Marcion established his own church, which he actually created in a hierarchical manner. So there was leaders of his church and, and those underneath. And then he also had his church, it was really, they followed high moral standards uh, in, their, in his church as well. Now, Marcion came into contact, too, with a great and early Christian father and bishop and a, a martyr of the church, St. Polycarp. Now, St. Polycarp was bishop of Smyrna. 
was 85 years old, ultimately, when he uh, goes to his heavenly reward. He was a disciple of St. John, so he knew, again, he had direct apostolic ties. He comes to the city of Rome in the year 154, and he preaches against these early heresies. In particular, he preaches against Marcion. There's a great exchange between him and Marcion. They meet each other in Rome. They actually knew each other before, right? And so Marcion comes to, to Rome, or rather Polycarp comes to Rome. He meets Marcion, and Marcion walks up to Polycarp, and he says, hey, don't you recognize me? And Polycarp turns to Marcion and says, I do indeed. I recognize the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> Basically rejecting, obviously, all of this man's teachings and his heresy. All right, and that, I think that's a good response to a heretic, right? Is, Get away from me, firstborn of Satan. Now, that's a bishop who was not afraid to really speak his mind. <laughs> we don't have bishops saying things like that today, although, although that might be a good thing. You know, we don't want them going around calling people names. But St. Polycarp was also in Rome. To, he really was in Rome to see the Pope to talk about the, how to celebrate the date of Easter because there was another question in the church during this period of time as to what method would be used in which to determine what date the church would use to celebrate Easter. In the eastern part of the church from Polycarp was from, the tradition was one where it was the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, regardless of what day of the week that fell on. Okay, so it was the 14th day of the Jewish month is when they would celebrate Easter. Now in the west, the tradition, especially in Rome, had, had changed, and that the Roman church celebrated Easter on the first Sunday after the full moon of the vernal equinox. So there's these different ways in which the churches understood these different halves of the church worshipped and celebrated Easter and chose what day to, to use to actually pick for Easter. Ultimately, that question of what date do we use and what method do we, do, we use was, will be settled by the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century. All right, so this is why we celebrate in the Roman church, right? We celebrate Easter as the first Sunday after the full moon of the vernal equinox. It's the method that's always, this is why Easter always moves. It's always on a Sunday, though. All right, in the East at this time, and, and, and still in some places today, it's celebrated on a different day. It's always on Easter, I think, now. But at the time, it was celebrated on whatever day of the week that happened to be. Monday, Friday, didn't matter, right? Not always on Sunday. Now, St. Polycarp goes to his eternal reward and is martyred in the year 155. Uh, and what happens in his martyrdom is that the emperor, Antoninus Pius, was in his city of Smyrna in the East. And basically, the mob, a mob of people, began shouting anti-Christian slogans and calling for Christians to be put to death. In the, in the amphitheater. And so the, the emperor decided to, to arrest Polycarp because the mob demanded his arrest. So he went along with the mob, had Polycarp arrested. He sentenced him to be killed by burning at the stake. But when they built the pyre and tied him to the stake, the fire wouldn't touch his body. And miraculously, he was just sitting there and the fire was all raged around him and he didn't burn. It didn't asphyxiate nothing. It was no ill effects from the fire whatsoever. So they ultimately had to extinguish the fire take him off of the stake, and then they executed him by running him through with a sword. And we'll see this as we, as we see some other martyrs in the history of the church as we go along our, ta our talk today, that there are many instances of martyrs when the first initial way in which the Romans tried to kill them, they were unable to. And so they had to pursue a different method. So it just kind of gives witness to, again, the miraculous nature of these martyrs and the way in which the Lord used them you know, to illustrate their faith and use them as, as these great witnesses. Now, another heresy that breaks out during this time, one that would affect the church for a while, is the heresy of Montanism. And this comes from the man Montanus. And Montanus claimed that he had direct and personal revelation from the Holy Spirit. And not only did he claim that he had direct personal revelation from the Holy Spirit, but he even went further than that and said that his revelations that he received from the Holy Spirit are the same and equal in authority to those that were revealed in the Scriptures. 
So he kind of places himself at, in equal, uh, you know, in, in equality with the authority of the scriptures and the teaching of the church. He was very much focused on the end times, that Jesus was coming again. He was very much kind of like the Timothy LaHaye of his, of his day and age, you know, waiting for the end times, the apocalypse to come. He lived a very strict ascetic life. He's severe, severe penitential discipline with, a, with an emphasis on fasting. And he was also a, an extremist in his theology in that he believed that sins that were committed by a Christian after baptism could not be forgiven. Sins, well, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Amen. <laughs> We'd all be in a world of trouble if that was really true, right? So sins committed after baptism could not be forgiven. And so he called, again, this is a very strict, strict way of life. And he called his followers to renounce marriage, to give up worldly goods, and to seek martyrdom. And that was another thing that was really wrong with Montanus, is that he, he encouraged his followers to go out and basically agitate the Roman authorities so that they would be arrested, they would be tortured, and they would be killed. And that's never been the church's understanding that, you know, we're, we have to go out and actively pursue martyrdom, right? If we're called to martyrdom, then we, we witness to our faith in the act of martyrdom, but it's not something we necessarily actively seek. We don't actively go out and agitate the government and have them round us up and kill us, right? And that's what Montanus wanted his followers to do, and many of them did do that. Now, Montanus is important because, as we'll learn in a little bit, we talk about the church father, Tertullian, he will join the Montanist group, and then ultimately he'll, see, he'll find that they're too, uh, too lax, and he'll start his own uh, group, as we'll see in a moment. Now, I mentioned that this period of time is not only external persecution, but also internal persecution in terms of early heresies and schisms. And now we come to one particular early schism in the history of the church, or a breaking of the community from recognizing the authority of the pope. That's what a schism is. You know, heresy is a direct denial of, of a basic doctrine of the church, uh, schism is rejecting the authority of the Pope, in particular, or rejecting even the authority of a bishop. And so what happens here in the middle part of the 3rd century, and around the year, two, around the year 200, 230, we have a man by the name of Hippolytus. And Hippolytus is an early Christian theologian and scholar. He writes many different works against heretics. He also writes a work called The Apostolic Tradition. And this is a very important work in the history of the Church because in this work he describes the liturgical customs of the Roman Church. So we have a really good insight here in the early part of the 3rd century as to how the church in Rome worshipped, and it's how especially the, the liturgy and the sacraments were performed. Now, unfortunately, Hippolytus was very rigorous in his outlook in terms of he was upset with the way that the Pope handled certain heresies. In essence, he was upset that the Pope would allow certain um, heretics who, had, who were contrite and who confessed their heresy to come back to the church. He was upset with that. He thought that if you would basically deny the teaching of the faith, then you would place yourself outside the community forever. And there was no chance or no way for you to come back into the community. So we got upset that the Pope was, was merciful, in essence. And don't we kind of struggle with that in our own day and age? I mean, don't we know people, unfortunately, that, that you know, they call themselves Christian, but, but they get upset with people who are contrite and come back to the church, even maybe public sinners who confess and say they're sorry, but yet come back. And there's always that, there's a group, you know, that always is very rigorous in terms of not wanting to show mercy to, to people who are like that. And sometimes we might even struggle with that ourselves. So this is a good, good example for us of knowing that even in the early you know, history of the church, the church struggled with that question. But ultimately, the way that the church you know, rules and the way that the Holy Father and the popes ruled at this time was to show mercy to people, right? especially repentant sinners, always to show mercy. Why? Because that's what Christ did, right? and Christ does to us. He shows us mercy. So that's the orientation the church has, and that's the orientation we should have. But Apollotus was upset with the Pope because of his, his, what he perceived as, as laxity and welcoming back repentant sinners. And so he ends up setting, having, have his followers 
elect him to be pope. So he sets himself up as an anti-pope against Pope Callistus here in the third century. So he's the first anti-pope in the history of the church, St. Hippolytus. Now it's interesting, St. Hippolytus is a saint. It's not odd that we have an anti-pope that's, that's known as, and, and you know, there's a reverence or there's devotion to him as a saint. Well, what happened? How did that come about? Well, he was rounded up in one of the persecutions and sent to the mines. And while he was in the mines, the pope at the time, Pope Pontian, was also in the mines. And so he sought out the pope, and he confessed his sins and asked for forgiveness, and you know, said he was sorry for being an anti-pope and for creating the schism in the church. And the pope, again, showing mercy, welcomed him back into the community and accepted his, his, uh, repent, his, his uh, confession. And so he was reconciled to the church and ultimately died in the mines as a martyr. And so he was later for his, his sanctity and his holiness and writings was re, uh, recognized and is recognized today as a saint, as Saint Hippolytus. is the only pope, only anti-pope rather, in the history of the church that's canonized. So a little, uh, little trivia question for you. You can ask that of your friends and say, has there ever been an anti-pope who's been canonized? And if... They say, well, no, of course not. You can say, ah, wrong, St. Hippolytus. <laughs> now, we talked about during, this, during last um, time together that there were these Roman propagandists who wrote these different treatises and tracts against the church and had spread all these different myths to try to prevent people from becoming Christian. Well, also, too, at this time, as those pamphlets are being written, then obviously there spawns a, a response from the church. And we have the growing up of the first instance of apologists, you know, learned men who rise up to the occasion and write responses, basically, to, to the Roman authorities or to these Roman authors to try to tell the, the true story, to defend the teachings of the church and defend what the Christians are. And the one that's most important in this period of time, in the early part of the second century, is St. Justin Martyr. And St. Justin Martyr was a learned philosopher. He converts to the faith, and he was a prolific writer. He wrote works on how to interpret the scriptures. He wrote works against different heresies that were around at this time. And he also wrote apologies, or works to defend the teaching of the faith against um, the Romans. And in particular, he wrote one work to the Roman emperor at the time, Antoninus Pius. And in this work, he, may, he mentions many different things, but he defends the church's teaching on baptism in the Eucharist. And in particular, we read from St. Mart, uh, Justin Martyr one particular um, writing about the Eucharist. And again, it's another example of the early Christian understanding and belief in the real presence of the Eucharist, because he wrote this. The, this food we call Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake except one who believes that the things we teach are true and has received the washing for forgiveness of sins and for rebirth, and who lives as Christ handed down to us. For we do not receive these things as common bread or common drink, but as Jesus Christ our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation. So also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. So again, here we have the early part of the second century, a middle part of the second century, another example of the fact that the early Christians believed in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. It's not something new, not something the church came up later in the fourth century, but something that existed from the very, very beginning. So a very important kind of uh, author for us to know and, and his writings to know so that we can defend our faith in, uh, in our belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now also during this time we have, we have the apologist St. Justin Martyr. We also have early church fathers who rise up and who are write works of theology and write works against uh, different heresies uh, that are present at the time. And one of those men in particular that I mentioned just a minute ago is, is Tertullian. And Tertullian lived from 163 to 230. 
again, one of these early church fathers. He was from Carthage. He was the son of a centurion and became a Christian pretty much later in his life and was ordained a priest around the year 200. Now, he wrote many different works, and he also wrote apologies. And in one apology, he answers the question to Roman society, who are Christians? He's trying to dispel these myths, again, that we talked about earlier, this myth that Christians are all from the ignorant and poor class. And so he wrote this. He says, I shall go on to demonstrate the peculiarities of the Christian society so that having refuted the evil accusations against it, I may point out its positive good. We are a body knit together by the sense of one belief, united in discipline, bound together by a common hope. We form an alliance and a congregation to assail God with our prayer, like a battalion drawn up for combat. We pray, too, for the emperors, Man, addressing that myth that you know, Christians are bad, or bad citizens. We live with you, eat the same food, wear the same clothing, have the same way of life as you. We live in the same world as you. We sail with you, we serve as soldiers with you, and till the ground and engage in trade. So again, he's trying to paint this picture of the early Christians. as look, we're, we're like you. We just happen to believe, you know, in the one true faith, the one true God. And it brings us joy, and, you know, brings us, and we live out our, these theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now, unfortunately, Tertullian, as he got older, kind of got um, a little bit ornery in his old age, and became a follower of Montanus, as I said, and was very rigid and very rigorous in his understanding of the faith. And he ultimately attacked the church for what he considered were her lax penitential practices. He joins the Montanists in the year 211, but then ultimately thinks that they're too lax and breaks off from them and, and, and starts his own, um, own group, so to speak. So Tertullian, his writings are still read in the church today. He's even quoted in the Catechism. So he is considered an early church father, but he's not considered Saint Tertullian. Um, because he broke off from the church, obviously. Now, another man who lived around this time as well, who was an early church father, is a man by the name of Origen. And Origen lived in Alexandria, Egypt. We know an awful lot about Origen, or at least he was from Alexandria, he lived there for a time, and then he would live uh, later on in the Holy Land. But Origen, we know an awful lot about him from the work of the first church historian, Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius wrote a work called the Ecclesiastical History, and he devotes a good part of that book to Origen, Origen's life, and, and many of his writings. Origen has a very interesting background. His father actually suffered martyrdom. So when he was a teenager, he actually he knew his father, his father had been arrested under one of the persecutions, and he wrote letters to his father in prison, encouraging his father to maintain the faith, and ultimately his father did die a martyr. He became head of the catechetical school in Alexandria, a school that was set up to, to uh, form people in the faith and to teach them the faith at this time. Uh, he's, a, he's a great teacher and a prolific writer. He wrote many, many, many different works. Um, he, was kind of con- he was considered a scripture scholar. He wrote, very many com- he wrote a multitude of commentaries on the scripture. He ultimately was ordained a priest and settles in the Holy Land, but he had a falling out with his bishop in Alexandria, and as a result of that, he then was forced to flee to Egypt, and, or he forced to flee from Egypt and lived in the Holy Land, um, and then was kind of separate in, in a certain sense from his bishop. And that's one of the reasons why he's not considered Saint Origen, because he had this, this conflict with his bishop. Now, ultimately, he was arrested and tortured under the persecution of the emperor Decius. Didn't die, but uh, was tortured for the faith, and then ultimately did die soon after his arrest uh, because of the effects of that torture. Now, I mentioned that uh, Origen was arrested during the persecution of the Emperor Decius, and so we come to the, 
the first empire-wide persecution. And the first empire-wide total intense persecution of Christians happened under this emperor Decius, and it was from 249 to 251. Now, Decius was a very strong man, very inflexible, and what he wanted was he wanted unity in the empire. And he wanted unity in the empire settled on the pagan ways. And he really thought that the Christians were a, a presence of, of disunity in the empire. So he wanted to get rid of them and bring back unity to the empire. So he issues an edict in January of 250. And this edict of persecution required every man, woman, and child in the empire to make a public sacrifice before the idols of the pagan gods. The refusal to do so was your death, was death. So everyone had to go before the pagan gods and offer some form of sacrifice. He initially starts off the persecution by going after the head of the church, the bishop of Rome, uh, Pope Fabian at, at the time, arrests him and has him martyred and executed. Unfortunately, during the, the persecution of Decius, because it was very intense, we see throughout the church different uh, response. There were those who, who gave their faith and, and lived up to, to their calling as witnesses and martyrs. Unfortunately, there were a lot of Christians who gave in, and even a lot of bishops who, who gave in. They, they, many bishops we have at this time, we know that they fled from their communities and went into hiding and allowed kind of the Roman government to come in and take their communities and didn't stay to, to protect their flock. So it was a time of great difficulty in the church. We also have stories of Christians who were very wealthy, who would pay people to go in their, pre in their stead and offer sacrifice to the gods, thinking that somehow that was okay. You know, I'll pay somebody to, to do something sinful, and that, that is not sinful on my part. Obviously, that doesn't work. But we have that example happening there. Now, Decius, the persecution under Decius comes to an end because Decius is out with the army campaigning in the Balkans, uh, or what are the modern-day Balkans, and he disappears in a swamp, he and the army. So the, uh, the moral of that story is if you mess with the Christians, you're going to end up disappearing in a swamp. So don't mess with the Christians. And we'll actually see this with a couple of different other emperors. Those who really go after the church will ultimately have something bad happen to them. One emperor that that happened to was an emperor by the name of Valerian. He follows after, um, Decius a short while after. And Valerian at first is very friendly to the Christians, but then problems begin to rage throughout the empire. There's some unrest. There's some um, invasions by the barbarians. The Persians lost an, launch an invasion against the Roman Empire in the east, so he begins to, again, have problems and how he deflects criticism from himself and from his policies by going after the Christians. So in 257, he issues an edict of, of persecution where he condemns all Christian bishops, priests, and deacons to death. So you see here in the Valerian persecution, he's directly going after the, the, the authority and the leadership of the church with the understanding or the thought that if I kill the leadership, then, you know, the whole thing will collapse and everybody will, die, will, will go away and the Christians will be no more. But what he does is, this is also during the time of the Valerian's persecution where we have the great story of Pope St. Sixtus II and St. Lawrence, his deacon. Or many of us probably heard the story of St. Lawrence, the deacon. St. Sixtus, Pope St. Sixtus was arrested by the Roman authorities while he was saying Mass in the catacombs. Lawrence was assisting him at that liturgy. St. Sixtus is taken up into above ground where he's executed on the spot. St. Lawrence is then told by the Roman authorities to gather up all the treasure of the church and bring it back to the Roman authorities in a couple of days. St. Lawrence then goes out and does that, and he shows up to the Roman authorities in a couple of days with a group of poor people. And the Roman authorities look at him and say, you know, what are you doing? He says, well, this is the treasure of the church. This is, who we, this is why we're here, to serve the poor and serve our neighbor. The Roman authorities weren't too happy with that response. And so they have St. Lawrence arrested and martyred by placing him on a grill. And they burn him, basically, in a barbecue pit. And so this, again, you know, the story goes that St. Lawrence, you know, was, went to his death a happy martyr. And he's on one side of the grill being roasted. And he turns over to his executioner and says, I'm done on this side. Flip me over. 
So he's a man, obviously, who embraced his martyrdom and, and, you know, had grace, obviously, during that martyrdom. Now, Valerian ultimately would then be captured by his enemies, he's the by the Persians. He's the first Roman emperor to ever be captured in battle. Um, again, mess with the Christians and bad things will happen to you. So he's, a, he's captured by his enemies, the Persians, and he's held prisoner for five years. And during that five-year period time of captivity, he was used as a step stool by the, by the Persian emperor to mount his horse. So the Persian emperor, to get on his horse, would have the Roman emperor Valerian, you know, get down on all fours, and he'd step on his back to get on his horse. Ultimately, Valerian dies in captivity, and the king of the Persians, Shapur I, has, his skin, has him skinned, has his body skinned and then stuffed with straw and hung in a Persian temple as a trophy. So again, moral of the story, if you're a political authority, don't mess with the Christians, because bad things will happen to you. Um, some politicians and political systems should know that historical example today. Right? It would be a good thing. Now we come to the end with, with the, the last persecution, the one that's considered in history known as the Great Persecution. And this happens under the Emperor Diocletian. And this lasts for two years, very intense persecution from 303 to 305. Now Diocletian is very important for us as Catholics for, for one in particular reason. What he does was Diocletian was a great administrator. And there had been many, many different um, it had been instability, political instability in the empire before he came to the throne. And he wanted to end that instability. What would happen is you have these different Roman legions, and they would appoint or they would elect their general as emperor when the emperor in Rome died. And then another legion would elect their general emperor, and these legions would then obviously have to fight it out to figure out who was going to be the emperor. So there's a lot of civil war and a lot of political instability. Diocletian wanted to end all that, and the way that he decided to do that was create a system by which there would be a logical um, you know, succession, an order of succession in, in the uh, empire. And what this is known as, in history, as the Tetrarchy. And what he does is he divides the empire into half, into an east half and a west half. All right? And so you have kind of Rome on the western half, and then you have you know, modern-day Greece and Asia Minor, Turkey, and, and the Holy Land on the east. So he divides the empire into half, and in these two halves he places an emperor. So there's an emperor of the east and an emperor of the west. Then underneath the emperor he places a second-in-command, a Caesar. So there'd be a Caesar of the West and a Caesar of the East. And so these four men are known as the Tetrarchy. And so what would happen is, as the emperor in the West died, the Caesar underneath him would then fleet up, so to speak, and become the emperor. Same thing in the East. So this was this kind of logical you know, progression of leadership to try to prevent this political instability and civil war. Now what he also did, which is important for us as Catholics, is that he divided the empire not only in a half, but he divided each half of the empire into smaller regional areas and local jurisdictions which he named after himself. He called them dioceses. So you ever wonder where we get that name, the Diocese of Arlington or the Diocese of Richmond, where that, where that word ever comes from? It comes from here, the Emperor, Roman Emperor Diocletian from the 4th century. Because what will happen over time, especially in the West, is that as central authority in Rome collapses in the latter part of the 5th century, which we'll talk about next week, then what you have remaining is really the only kind of form of government or political structure that exists is the church, in particular the bishop. And so the head of that regional area, that diocese, will ultimately over time become the bishop. And that's how we have the dioceses in our church today. Now Diocletian decided to engage in the persecution against Christians known as the Great Persecution in the year 305. He does this because his Caesar in the east, a man by the name of Galerius, really disliked the Christians and he wanted to get rid of them. And he convinces um, Diocletian to issue uh, the four different edicts against uh, the Christians. And so some of these, these edicts, they kind of, over time, over this, they, they ratchet up in intensity. The first edict is that he orders all Christian churches throughout the empire closed. And that all Christian scriptures, the scriptures were to be handed over to the Roman authorities. 
The second thing he said was, the second edict was that he ordered the imprisonment of all the clergy of the church. So all bishops and priests were to be rounded up and imprisoned. The third edict was that he ordered the torturing and the death of all clergy. So again, you see how this is kind of ratcheting up in intensity. The fourth one was then an edict that was very similar to the edict we just saw under the Roman Emperor Decius, that every man, woman, and child in the empire was to perform some form of public sacrifice to the gods. Right? So we have all these, different, these four different edicts under Diocletian that, that each ratchet up in intensity. Now, the, how the Christians responded during the Great Persecution were basically in four different ways. There were the martyrs, as we've talked about, those who, who responded ultimately by giving of their lives for their faith. And they would go to death in most horrific ways. They, would, they could be sent to the beasts in the amphitheater. They could be run through with a sword. They could be tied to a stake and burned. So we had the martyrs. The second group of people we had during this time were, were known as the confessors. The confessors. These are Christians who were arrested, tortured, but, and, but maintained the faith, but didn't, weren't killed for the faith. So an example of that was when we just talked about Origen. Remember I said Origen was arrested and tortured, but he didn't actually die during imprisonment and during the torture. So not a martyr, but somebody who witnessed to the faith. Now, besides torturing, confessors could also be sent to the mines. Right? We looked at this with St. Hippolytus. Now, if you went to the mines, you probably were thinking, okay, well, if there's death or the mines, the mines might not be so bad, right? No, the mines were actually very, very bad. The Romans would send the most hardened criminals to the mines. So if you were sent to the mines, you were, first of all, not in a group of people that were really nice. Uh, and then when you were in the mines, what the Romans would do is that they would, they would cut off, the, or they would, they would cut the tendon of your left foot, and then cauterize it to prevent your escape. So you couldn't really walk very well. You couldn't run. They also would cut out your right eye and then close the wound with a hot rod iron to maim you, to disfigure you. And then if you were a man, you really didn't want to go to the mines if you were a man, because if you were a man, they would castrate you. So again, this is not a fun place to go in the mines. And, but despite all this disfigurement and despite this horrific torturing, we have records and stories of Christians in the mines maintaining their faith. And not only do they maintain their faith, but they, they are teaching their faith to the hardened Roman criminals. And so we have examples of conversions of these Roman criminals in the mines because the, the uh, Christians are there. So again, just a good example again for us, that even though we can suffer and are in the midst of great, at times maybe physical persecution, then you know, we can still maintain our faith and give witness to others and help bring them into the church. So we have the martyrs, the confessors, the third group of, of Christians and how they responded to the persecutions are what's known as the traditores or the traitors. And the traditores, that word comes from the Latin word tradere, which means to hand over or to surrender. So these are Christians who actually give in to the persecutions, and they hand over the sacred scriptures, or they hand over the sacred vessels used in the liturgy. And this was such, the, the handing over of the scriptures and the handing over of the vessels was such a, it happened so frequently during this, this period of great persecution that, that Augustine later in the 5th century would refer to this period of time as the persecution by the handing over of the scriptures. So these Christians would hand over the, the, the scriptures or the vessels to the Roman authorities in order to you know, prevent their own martyrdom. Now the last group of Christians we'll talk about, and we'll wrap it up, is in how they responded during the persecutions are what's known in history as the lapsi. The lapsi. And the lapsi are basically those who lapsed. They were, tra they were traditores or traitors during the persecution, so they gave in. They either handed over the scriptures or they offered sacrifice to one of the pagan gods. But then after the persecution... They repented of that action and wanted to be welcomed back into the church. Right? So the lapsi, those who lapsed and now want to come back. 
And again, like I mentioned just a minute ago, there was this big internal question that arose in the church because of these people. And the question was, what do we do with them? You know, do we welcome them back? Or do we say, no, I'm sorry, you know, you can't come back to the community? Because think about this. I mean, think about it. if you were a Christian and you survived the great persecution, and then you, but your, your loved one didn't. Maybe your wife was arrested and killed. Maybe your husband. Maybe your children. Maybe a, you know, another close relative or a friend that you really loved. And they died and gave witness to their faith. And here's this person who offered sacrifice to the God. And now later they come back and now everything's quiet and everything's peaceful. Say, yeah, I want to be a full member of the church. You know, I mean, human nature would dictate that we would say, you know, we get be angry with those people, not want them to come back into the church. It was a big question as to whether or not to welcome them back or not. Ultimately, the question was settled by the example of the Bishop of Rome. And the Holy Father said that we should welcome these people back to the faith after a period of, of public penance. If they were truly contrite for what they had done and they perform a, an appropriate act, public act of penance, then they can be welcomed back. But again, it's a very, very a huge question of the church that affected the church at the time and, you know, as to whether or not we should show mercy or be very rigorous against these people. So those are the four kind of groups of Christians during this great persecution. Those who, who were martyrs, those who were confessors and who you know, didn't necessarily die for the faith but, but witnessed to it. Those who handed over, those the, tra- the traitors, the traditores, and then the lapsi. Ultimately, the, the great persecution will come to an end because in May of 305, Diocletian will abdicate. Galerius will, will continue to be, he's the Caesar in the east, he now becomes the emperor. He then gets extremely sick and ill and is on his deathbed. And he issues, kind of as, an, as a last act in order to try to save himself, he issues an edict of toleration, again, to the Christians. And he does this in, in a way to, to, again, try to prevent his ultimate death. It doesn't work. Uh, he didn't assuage the, the Christian God to, to uh, prevent his, or to save him from his illness, and he ultimately dies. But the great persecution kind of peters out as a result of Diocletian abdicating and then dying, and then Galerius himself dying. Now, I should have mentioned, and this will come into play next week, that although the great persecution was going on during the reign of Diocletian throughout the empire, and it was very intense, there was one part of the empire where it wasn't very intense. And that one part of the empire where it wasn't very intense was in the west, in the the area of Gaul, or modern-day France, and in Britain. And the reason why it wasn't that intense there, I mean, Christians were arrested, but there was hardly any martyrdom in the west. And the reason for that was because the emperor in the West at the time was a man by the name of Constantius. And Constantius is important because he is the father of Constantine. And Constantine, the emperor, we'll learn about next week and how he begins to show favor to the Christians and the Christian church. So ultimately, we come to this end of our time period, the time period of the persecution. We see this great witness of Christians and the great blood of the martyrs that was spilled. And we read or we recall the quote from Tertullian, and we talked about that the blood of the martyrs is a seed of Christians. So what ended up happening as a result of the persecutions is the empire will ultimately be converted to the faith. And so that's the story that we'll talk about next week. Now, a lot of people have the question of, well, how many Christians were martyred during this period of time? Well, one historian has given an estimate. He thinks that from the year 250 to 311, there were about 60,000 Christian martyrs. So from 250 to 311, about 60,000 Christians went to their death. That, and he says the, the number of believers during this period of time was anywhere from 3 to 7 million Christians. So about 14% of the population, population of the empire during this time was Christian. So a little more than 10% of the empire was Christian. 60,000 of them are then ultimately martyred. So kind of a small minority, but yet still a large number of people dying. And so again, we have this great blood of the martyrs forming the seed of Christians. The empire will will convert, and, uh, and the persecutions come to an end. And we'll see next week when we meet how the emperor Constantine then changes 
uh, the orientation of the Roman government to the Christians. And we'll see the empire then flourishing and the faith even growing more and more. But that will cause, unfortunately, more problems to seep into the church. And we'll talk about those problems next week. So I think we'll have a break for a bit and then we'll have some questions. Uh, I'll just remind you that we did do a whole one-hour program on St. Polycarp and a one-hour program on St. Ignatius of Antioch. So if you wanted to hear what we did in that series, we actually read the text from that time period, the martyrdom of St. Polycarp and some of the, the letters of St. Ignatius. So if you want to get that, if you can't get a CD back there, you can always gra grab it off the Internet. Um, but those are, as Steve said, jewels that we have in the church. And so if you don't, if you don't know those stories, you've got to know them. You got to know him. All right. A couple of questions for Steve. Okay. You were talking about the lapses. Yes. And you said that if they did a public act of penance, they mm -hmm. could come back. Right. What's an example of public act yeah, of penance? Yeah, good question. I mean, yeah, you know, at this time, in the, in the early part of the church's history during this time, you know, penances were public. I mean, you had to, they were not, the whole notion that we understand, you know, of going to the sacrament of confession and receiving a, you know, a penance, it's pr usually prayers. We do it privately. I mean, that's, that didn't come until a little bit later in the history of the church to the Irish. But um, at this time, it would be public. So you'd have to go before the bishop and say, you know, I, you confess your sin. I mean, you wouldn't confess. You, sometimes you had to confess your sin publicly. Other times you could do it individually. But then you would be given a public penance. And the public penance would be such things as um, you'd have to stand outside the church door. And so every, every Sunday when the people came into the, to the church for, for liturgy, you would have to stand outside and beg forgiveness of the community. And that could be prescribed for a period of time, you know, for a couple of months or a, week, you know, a couple of weeks or years, depends on the severity of your, your uh, sin. And, and, you know, there wasn't a uniform um, form of, of penance. You know, it wasn't like it was like this decree went out from Rome and said, you know, if a lapsy, then this, like a flowchart, you know, from Rome that said this is how you do it. It was very much dependent upon each individual local bishop, how extreme he wanted to be and how, uh, what form those penances took. It could be a period of fasting. You know, long fasting for a period of time. But as a, pub, as a member of the public penitence, you had to, as a penitent, you had to go and be kind of outside the church from the community and, the, you know, and ask their prayers as they walked into the church. So very, very public. Uh, by the way, excellent lecture tonight. Thank you very oh, thank much. You. I appreciate uh, it. I'd always heard that as a martyr was being in the process of being executed, mm -hmm. if he or she recanted their faith, if they were willing to renounce it and said, I've change my mind, mm -hmm. Jesus is not my Lord, I'm willing to sacrifice the emperor, right. they would stop the process of their execution. Is that historically the, the way it Yeah, went? that's true. Yeah, I mean, if being led on the way, to, I mean, you had up until the point of death to recant. You know, most, of, I mean, the martyrs, those who were venerated as martyrs didn't, obviously, but, you know, I mean, yeah, there are stories of Christians who, who you know, were, were being led to their punishment and recanted. You know, most of the time, though, it happened before that. You know, the Christians would just give in and actually go and either hand over the scriptures, like I said, or hand over the sacred vessels, or even, even you have cases of people who handed over the names of Christians who had those things. So they'd come to you and say, do you have scriptures, or, you know, tell us what the scriptures are, and you would say, well, I don't know where they are, but I know who does, you know, and give them the name, and then they'd go off and, and talk to that person. So if you did that, that was still, you know, obviously giving in, so, or worshiping the emperor, offering incense, that kind of thing. You'll remember also from last week from Steve's talk about the 40 martyrs of Sebast, who, the one soldier who gave up right at the end and went to the warm pools, right? Oh, yeah. I think you've just hinted at this, but I was interested in that turning over the scriptures. I mean, 
who would have these? I thought that they would be pretty rare to have the actual scriptures. Do, well, I'm yeah, not I mean, well distributed, in other words. No, no, no. They, I mean, there's copies of the scriptures. We're Oh, yeah, they were out there. I mean, you, now, remember, the scriptures were not necessarily compiled into one particular book or, like, one volume. I mean, you'd have, you know, the writings of St. Paul, his letter to different communities. They'd have copies of those as individual copies. And so the scriptures, you know, would mostly be, be under the control of the bishop or maybe of a priest. And, I mean, occasionally they might even be in the homes of a layman, depending. You know, maybe a wealthy Christian might have them in their homes. And so you know, when the persecution began, they would be farmed out, so to speak, to try to not have them centrally located, so it would be easier for the authorities to get. But, yeah, no, I mean, they were, the scriptures were pro- prolific. It's not necessarily that everyone could read the scriptures. I mean, there was a lot of literate people in, in Roman society at the time. Uh, the vast majority of people, obviously, though, were illiterate, but they would be read, too, by those who could read. So, yeah, I mean, the copies, it was not uncommon to have a copy of, the, of, you know, one letter or of a gospel. Again, not necessarily all compiled together, but you'd have a copy of, you know, Mark, and you'd have a copy of Luke, you'd have some letters of Paul, that kind of thing. Not to keep making commentary in between your things, no, but, but you also remember from, uh, from St. Polycarp, that was one of his goals that after Ignatius passed through and he received his mission from Ignatius was to... Uh, to copy down Ignatius' letters and, and distribute them to the churches as many as possible. It became right. his life, his cause, Yeah, right, for those of you that attended that series. Yeah, remember, and even last week we ta- I talked about the epistle of St. Clement, you know, St. Clement I, the Pope, and, and how he wrote that letter to the church community in Corinth who had revolted against the bishop. I mean, that letter was widely copied and distributed all throughout the church. This is about origin. I'd like a clarification on a sure. couple of things. One is that uh, apparently Henri de Lubac, so uh, loved his commentaries on scripture that mm-hmm. he wrote himself a book on origin, okay. which I'd like you to talk a little about. And okay. then, but the other side of it is to clarify a little um, how origin has always been clouded a bit because of mm-hmm. self-mutilation, right, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can give a light on both those things. Sure. Yeah, I can on I can on the latter. On the former, actually, I haven't I haven't read De Lubac's book on origin, so I can't I can't comment necessarily on that. But um, in the second case, in terms of his self-mutilation, I mean, there's, a, there's that kind of story or cloud, as you put it, is a good way of putting it, that, that's, that's associated with origin, that he took literally, you know, the passage in, in Scripture about if, if your, you know, hand it causes you to sin, cut it off. Um, if another member of your body causes you to sin, cut it off. And so there's this idea that he somehow castrated himself and mutilated himself in that way. Now, that's actually mentioned by Eusebius of Caesarea in his work, the Ecclesiastical History. So... There is a, there's a you know, documented source on it. However, there are many other more recent historians which kind of doubt that story and whether or not that's actually true. Many historians, more recent historians, think that that was kind of spread by people who didn't like Origen. Because after Origen's death, there was great controversy in the church concerning his theology. Many of the, the works that he wrote were kind of speculative in nature, speculative theology, where you know, he would pose a question and then just try to answer the question based on his understanding of the scriptures. And, but there wasn't any kind of defined doctrine at the time, so a lot of it was very speculative. And there were, you know, as is wont to be even today, there are theologians that disagree on different interpretations of, you know, different teachings of the church. Or, and that's within the realm of debate. It's not like they're denying the teaching. They're just, you know, debating an interpretation of it. And so that existed with Origen, and so it kind of, some of his writings came into disfavor because of, of the speculative nature of it and, and different theologians saying, well, you know, he's more of a heretic. I mean, some tried to interpret his writings as being very heretical. Uh, others thought that he was very orthodox. And even some would change their mind, like St. Jerome, for example. Early on in his career, was a, was a big proponent of Origen, read his works and, and commented on his works. And kind of later on in his life, he, he went into the camp of those who didn't like Origen's works and began to write against them. So 
So again, that's kind of why, again, you have this notion of uh, Origen not being a saint. I mean, he had issues with his bishop, so there was discipline issues within the community that had people looked upon him in a non-positive light. <laughs> issues with his, some of his theology and writings, or those really writing about his theology, that caused some of that. And then this whole notion of whether he did or did not you know, mutilate himself. So I don't say that when I present. I don't say Origen is known for you know, doing this because there's doubt. There is a, there's an early source that says it happened, but even that is written about. Eusebius writes about it as if it was kind of a story that he heard secondhand. I mean, it's not like he had direct knowledge of that. Uh, so I don't mention that because there is that, that disparity in it. But, you know, his writings, I mean, some of his writings are, are, you know, his writings are still read today, obviously. Quotes of origin in the Catechism of the Catholic Church today. So it's not as if, you know, he's been condemned. Uh, he's just not been fully embraced, we could say. I understand that the early church, the um, saints were martyrs. But when did they start becoming saints because of being virtuous? Yeah, well, actually, that, that's a good, very good question. That's more in, in terms of what we're talking about next week. Um, but it's, it's around the time of when the persecution ends. So persecu the great persecution ends, as I said, in you know, 305, so the early part of the 4th century. So it's after that period of time, and once the faith is tolerated, once it becomes legal under the reign of Constantine, then you begin to see a, a shift in, in an understanding of holiness and of acclaiming you know, people as being saints. And we'll really see that next week when we talk about the rise of monasticism uh, in Egypt and, and in places in the East. This is really when you begin to see that that growth and venerating people for their virtuous life and their holiness. And, you know, during this time of persecution, you, we have what's called the red martyrdom, you know, those who shed their bloods. And during the time of monasticism and the rising of those holy men and women, it's known as white martyrdom. So it's, you know, those giving of their lives in, in a virtuous life, you know, separating themselves from the world to live in closer contact with God. So it's about that time, around the latter part of the 4th century uh, into the 5th century is when that shifts. Thank you very much, Steve. Great. Thank you, guys. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.